Hello once again, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless A Talk, our twice-monthly TTRPG interview show, where we talk to some of our favorite writers, performers, and creators in the space. Today's episode is a real treat, as I, DM Nathan, got to chat with Paladin, a.k.a. HTT Paladin, on the socials, who is a TTRPG content director, writer, producer, and general excellent creator of content. They are are most known as the co-director for Sina Una, an extremely robust and colorful crowdfunded D&D compatible campaign setting, which is based on Filipino mythology and history. The Sina Una team, which includes Paladin's co-director, Lucia, a.k.a. Seer Sword, just recently completed a new Kickstarter for an adventure book in the setting. Paladin and I got to cover a lot in this chat, ranging from their lifelong love of D&D to the great lengths that they went down to track down Filipino cultural information, to colonialism, to being sort of featured on Critical Role, to the mortifying ordeal of being known. It is a really lovely and meaningful conversation, I think, and a very human one with a very thoughtful creator. I hope you enjoy, and I really hope that you check out the Sina Una projects and Paladin in general. Links to all their stuff are available in the show notes, as are a few light content warnings. That's all from me. Hope you enjoy the episode, and see you next Tuesday for Reckless Attack. There's no good way. There's no good way to start it. I think as I've really learned over the course of doing these episodes. But hi, Paladin. How are you today? Yeah, I've 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 tried to have like really cool openings for for things I've done in the past. And like, there's no you just gotta start, start doing it. There's no smooth way to transition into it. It's always yeah, awkward. Yeah, you know, I I do like a preamble recorded thing beforehand, which does the like you know kind of like ah, and this person does this and that, and they're really cool, and it was a great interview. Tune in, but like the actual start of a conversation is always just like ah, we have to pretend we haven't already been talking, and <laughs> yeah, it's the cold slip into a cold, cold pool of water. <laughs> yes, well, let us begin the process of warming up this yeah. this conversational pool. Could you please introduce yourself to the people at home who may or may not know who you are? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, hi, everybody who's listening in. My name is Paladin. Um, yeah, that's my actual name, and I'm in the <laughs> middle of a legal process to change it legally, because hmm. life is weird like that, I guess. <laughs> uh, my pronouns are they, them. Oh, right, what I'm no, people know me for. Uh, you might know me from Twitter as being this kind of sad person talking about filipino <laughs> stuff uh or someone who works in the ttrpg industry which is sometimes also depressing um <laughs> i'm most known yeah sometimes yeah uh i'm best known for my role as co-director for the islands of sina una more recently tales from sina una it's adventure sequel yes. uh and some miscellaneous projects here and they're working for different companies uh, i i get around i get around <laughs> yes so i i have known about you and known about kind of your projects for a little while. Cause I think the first Sina Una book was, was uh, 2019. 
was okay 2019 um and have been vaguely vaguely aware of it and as i've kind of entered even more into the tabletop role-playing game space have really enjoyed your presence and enjoyed your work a whole lot and i'm really excited to get into the details book once it is out for consumption uh mm -hmm. but i'm really excited to to talk to you and learn just a little bit more about how you got into the hobby and kind of what what drives you to do the cool stuff that you do. <laughs> sure. So I will I will start with kind of the the all important, albeit lightly cliche question of where did you first get exposed to tabletop role playing games? How did you get going and, and what kind of grabbed you? Uh, I got introduced to D and D and TTRPGs in general from my father when I was three. Really? Yeah, we were in a long car ride and I was going antsy and he wanted and he wanted me to chill chill out because like uh, <laughs> how are you going to tame a three-year-old you know yep uh and he just started talking to me about his time as playing D, D. really because he's been playing since he was seven so did was were this just like a regaling of like here's cool stuff that happened to me was he telling you about like the game itself or was it yeah. narrative focused no, no he was talking about cool stuff that he did in his games he was playing D, &D primarily when he during like uh the 80s uh when he was in his early 20s and drinking a lot, you know? <laughs> um, so like it just, oh yeah, you played uh, a left-handed bard who played a seven string guitar. Yeah, cool, that's, ooh, real impressive there, dude. <laughs> uh, but as a three-year-old, it's like, this is amazing. I don't get yeah, these references, cool. these aren't references at all. This is just amazing, this is cool. My dad is <laughs> cool, because he plays nerd stuff. But uh, I got interested when I was three, grew up reading different TTRPG books on the side. And then when I was 10, I finally got to start playing D&D &D via the 3.5 edition rule set. When I hear from a lot of people, I hear a lot of people who are stuck in the like, yeah, I had access to books kind of limbo, but no one to play with, especially kind of right yeah. around that area. So who who were who was 10 year old Paladin uh, playing playing D&D &D with? Uh, one of my father's co-workers had a kid in high school. Who was who got him and his friends into D and and you know they didn't want to run a game. They had no idea how to run a game. They knew that their their father's uh, <laughs> neat slash nerdy coworker played. And when my father went over there to play with them, he was like, "Hey, you play D and D?" And like I had been I've been spoon fed like seven years worth of D and D <laughs> as a tease. Like, yeah, I'm uh -huh. ready to play some D and D. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. How did 10-year-old you handle playing with high schoolers? <laughs> so I think the thing to realize is that these aren't like, these are high schoolers. They're not the most, teenagers in general are, are sometimes very, very scary and sometimes very, very capable. Yes. That said, we were stuck in a 10 by 10 room for three hours. <laughs> uh, it wasn't locked. <laughs> um, it, we were stuck in a 10 by 10 unlocked room for three hours. Up until I asked, hey, can I open the door? It's not locked. <laughs> How long has it not been locked? Since the beginning. <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, you know, lessons learned as the adventure, right? Is something you just wiggle the door handle, maybe sometimes. Yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah. And and my father just sat there with a lot of patience, just watching like <laughs> seven plus people just kind of flail around in a room that he didn't lock. <laughs> so was your dad the the dm of the group yeah oh cool do you remember what your like what your character was like what your conception of oh this is what a D, D character is it's it's this thing 
Oh, yeah. I had just watched Lord of the Rings with my dad. <laughs> I was yep. playing a I was playing a human ranger dual wielding stuff. I mean, yep. I mean, yeah. I couldn't even guess what percentage of D&D characters, especially pre-5e, are just like, well, I saw Lord of the Rings and I you told me that this is Lord of the Rings and so I just did a Lord of the Rings thing. Oh, and in ordinate amounts. Yeah, my <laughs> first character was me doing the thing where like people like make on YouTube of, hey, can we make Aang in D&D? Mine was, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make Aragorn Danny. That's gonna be cool. That's gonna be really cool. It's gonna be sick. It's gonna be sick. It's gonna be sick. I mean, uh, and, and often it is sick. So fair. Yeah. So what's the trajectory from 10 year old uh, Aragorn not checking doors and seeing if they're locked to kind of the paladin that is today? Like, where, where did you kind of start? getting more not even just professionally or publicly quote unquote serious about tabletop role-playing games but was there a point where you like where it truly got its hooks into you and you're like ah this is what i want to do or has it kind of always been like that oh no i spent 16 i spent the next 16 years being a complete total loser <laughs> uh with like no direction all my life working dead-end jobs that will get me nowhere for a career uh I only started getting. I only started having an actual "quote unquote" career when I started working on the first Cena Una book. Really? So, yeah. were you? Had you been playing a lot of D anD D in those in those sixteen years, or in I, the lead up to Cena Una? Or I've been playing or thinking about D anD D every day since I was three. <laughs> so, so, so yes. So for sure, yes. For sure, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I. I either played it or read about it or was thinking about it or writing about it or <laughs> theory crafting about it. I remember in math class, my wonderful math t teacher, Ed, told me, hey, man, you got to put you got to put these these things away. You got to put these products away, man. You got to focus on your career, OK? Like, it's, this is a nice hobby, but like, you got to focus on the stuff that will actually, like, you know, sure. help you get an income. I'm like, bless them. But also, like, I don't know, man, this is nothing I'm really qualified to do. And here you are. So like, it's, you know, it, it turned around nicely, hopefully. Um, yeah. So sure. I know that, that you got involved, your, your, the way you got involved with Sina Una, especially kind of on your path to being co-director of the project was not, not like a straight line necessarily. So how did you kind of get connected to that project and what was so interesting about it to you and kind of how, how did you go from where you were to being obviously one of the big creative leads of it? So uh, I met Sierra Sword on Twitter where I applied to redo her logo just to vectorize it and uh, I got denied. Uh, it's, I, I really tell people this. But my first, my first time trying to work with Seer Sword ended up in me just not working for Seer Sword because like <laughs> the, my cost is, was too high for her budget. But later on, she hit, she had me up asking if I could do numbers, like customized numbers for dice. Oh, cool! Uh, I did that, and we just kept talking here and there. Uh, we started working on character sheets that never saw the light of day. And while we were working on that, uh, she asked, "Hey, I'm working on this." Uh, project for that has filipino people in it i know you mentioned that you were filipino people would you be interested i'm like yeah sure i could use the money mm -hmm. uh, and, I, <laughs> and i wanted to get into book layouts oh got it cool yeah did you start you started as a graphic as graphic designer or like graphic artist for the yeah project? i was i was probably just the logo designer and the layout artist to begin with <laughs> and like i had only self-taught myself graphic design uh starting in the fall of the previous year wow really that's cool yeah 
What was interesting about that, like about graphic design, or was it something you were just interested in? Was it something that you're like, ah, this is a, you gross, we live in capitalism. Uh, and this is, ah, this is a skill that I can do more projects or more things with. Or what was so interesting uh, about that to you? You recall how I said that I spent like the interim 16 years being a loser. <laughs> mm -hmm. In October 2018, my father had a severe heart attack. Oh, so sorry. Uh, like 98% blockage. Wow. Uh, and the realization I had looking at him in the hospital was if he dies right now, he'll have nothing to be proud of me for. And he'll do something with my life. And like I already had all the programs. Uh, I already had some inkling of it. I figured, well, graphic design is pretty needed. I guess I'll teach myself some graphic design and hopefully this will take me somewhere and make something of my life. Because mm -hmm. that, you know, existential panic of losing your parents. Yeah. Uh, he's okay now, but it's just right. that that panic was severe enough to make me learn a new skill set. Yeah, that makes a whole bunch of sense. Uh, before yeah. I ask a little bit more about kind of like your, your you know, the tendrils of Sina <laughs> kind of bringing you in and, and bringing you up, uh, can you, uh, and I, we'll talk about this in the preamble and there'll be links in all of the descriptions and all that stuff, but hey, what's, what's Sina Una? <laughs> yeah, sure. What's the, what's the project? What's the place? Uh, so the Islands of Sina Una is a 5e campaign setting for D&D &D based on pre-colonial Filipino culture and mythology. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, we wound up focusing on the porcelain era of Filipino history because that is a point just before the Spanish arrived where we had guns. Is all you knew kind of going in that like, hey, we are working on a project with other Filipino people and we're reaching out and trying to bring people together. Is that kind of all the all the pitch that there was for you at that point? Uh, and yes. it's a gig? Yes, that was it. I literally just needed some money. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I... This is a weird thing, but a lot of a lot of <laughs> newer generation of Filipino people, a lot of younger generation of Filipino people, especially out here in the West, try and uh, divorce themselves from feeling truly Filipino because they just don't mm -hmm. know how to. Mm -hmm. It's the imposter syndrome of like you you do uh, you make one single art piece and you don't call yourself an artist. Yeah, like, but like you did the thing. You are the <laughs> thing. You did. You should call yourself that. And you're like, well, no, I can't. I really can't. You know, that kind of hesitation. Uh, that's how a lot of diaspora of Filipino people feel. Um, and I was no different because, you know, all I had to fix my culture was like, oh, well, there's hollow hollow, which I hate. Uh, some <laughs> food I like. But also that's not enough to really feel like I'm part of a culture, you know, despite me being of that heritage. So, like, all I knew about it was, hey, I need some money. I was going to doing book layout, which I know is needed in this industry. Uh, and I'll make a quick buck. Uh, and yeah, it kind of took over my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here you are three, three years and change yeah, or four yeah. years change later or whatever, uh, talking about yeah. the book <laughs> and other yeah, books that have three come. years and four months. Yeah. <laughs> Was this the first tabletop role-playing game D and D capital P project that you had, had been a part of at this point, other than it sounds like maybe some small design kind of things kicking around. Yes. As someone who had been spending so much of their time and life and math classes talking and thinking about D&D &D and tabletop, what, what did that mean to you to be able to have something that in any sort of way to connect with that hobby professionally? Uh, it more along the lines ran along, with, it ran along the thought processes of, oh, this checks out. And also, oh, what a relief. Because <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. like, if I didn't do this as a career, I'd still be a 
doing so much about it or doing so much for my games, yeah. you know? Um, it's just, oh my God, I can get money for doing this? Oh, thank God. <laughs> cool. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is much better than doing it for no money. Yeah. It, so it became a relief. It became a good thing for me where I could just like start working on this kind of stuff uh, just immediately full time because I had nothing else going on in my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you come in as graphic designer. It is a big book. There are classes. There are subclasses. There are ancestries. There is. It's a setting book. It, there's like hooks. There's, there's ev everything you could <laughs> basically have in a setting book. It is there and it is robust. So at what point in, in kind of the development of the big kind of spectacle it became, did you step into that even more kind of creative control uh, role? I, I remember I got bumped up to co-director immediately after we announced the project. And we announced the project in June, a couple of days after my birthday, uh, <laughs> with, oh God, just the, the worst, the worst graphic. I'm seeing it in my mind. It's, it's <laughs> awful. Um, it's genuinely awful to look at. It's, yeah. <laughs> always the worst looking back at old work and being like oh yeah it was the it, best i could do then but yeah because <laughs> it doesn't resemble anything that what, we're, what we did for the actual book itself you know <laughs> um but it was really after i i i released the graphic because in the months since i joined the project i was just doing a lot for it immediately doing a lot for it uh and so because of doing all these responsibilities just automatically uh which is I guess the antithesis of quiet quitting, go me, I suppose. <laughs> uh, she bought me up to co-director. That's um, awesome. And, I went, and then I went to Gen Con 2019. What does being co-director of this project entail? Like what, what's kind of your day-to-day? -day? What's your big month-long thing? Like what, what does that look like for you? And, and what, do you, what, do you, what do you do? <laughs> Generally, it's just keeping up with writers, making sure that they're, they're doing okay. Um, cause our division of labor for, for editing the notebook has been, uh, Sierra Sword is managing payment and art direction and art, and I'm handling writers and narrative flow. What does it look like to work with writers and put together, like you said, that narrative flow for classes, for the world, for whatever, do you have a meeting where you bring everyone together and brainstorm? Do you assign it, you know, kind of like, oh, just go run off and fill out this space? Or what does that look like for you guys? And and kind of why did you choose that approach? Well, in the first book, we had uh, Mackenzie DeArmas with us, who now works at WOTC. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that broke down, it's breaking down for both ones, has been just giving assignments out and saying, hey, you have freedom here. What do you want to do with it? Um, and, we're, and we're doing that in part because a lot of uh, RPGC people get their voices diminished when they're working in Western projects. Uh, and we try our best to avoid doing that for this project. Um, RPGC standing for RPG Southeast Asia. Um, so for people who are on the team who are from Southeast Asia, this, this helps them out just not to have their voices smothered. Mm -hmm. uh, but for this one, for the newer book, for Tales from Sina Una, we say, hey, we want you to do an adventure. It needs to be around this long. If you go under that, that's fine. If you go a little over that, that's fine. We're just shooting for this many pages, which is going to be roughly around this many words. Um, some people are overshooting that. Some people are undershooting that. It's kind of balancing out. <laughs> and just letting them run with it. Uh, we check in on what they're doing. 
because everybody has different levels of where they're at when it comes to adventure writing, uh, even world build and world builds, you know, mechanically free. Mm-hmm. When it comes to actual, yeah, uh, actual adventure writing, I'm working closely with each writer on what they need to do because some of them are very, very, very skilled uh, world builders, but they need help when it comes to like bumping up the mechanics or helping out the flow or making sense of an adventure. Yes. Uh, pointing out problem areas or problem plot holes that might pop up. So I've been running this stuff since I was, you know, 10. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I played through a lot of pre-mades. I know where holes are. Yes. I right. know what to look for. Or pointing out where they need to be aware of a certain danger or a certain problem that might run up for potential DMs. Uh, just kind of adjusting what people need on, on a person-to-person basis based on what they're writing. For you as kind of, again, writer-wrangler as... As that kind of like eye in the sky who is empowering people sounds like, and is is making sure that everything is tightened the way it needs to be tightened. Do you enjoy that process? What parts of it do do you enjoy? Uh, I enjoy it immensely. I do I do this kind of thing for a lot of projects that I'm working on because most projects I'm on, I'm the person leading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with this, there's a lot of pressure off me because Sears there. But for this uh, in particular, it's just very fulfilling because a lot of the people who are writing for it are recurring members to the team. You know, they've been here since the first book or they're new members to the team who already like the setting, who already know what's up, who already enjoy it. Uh, and so being able to go back and forth with a bunch of people who are going, hey, does this work? I'm like, hell yeah. And they're going, <laughs> hell yeah. And I'm like, hell yeah. And they're like, hell yeah. Uh, I would love to like go through your like Slack channel or text message thread. And it's just 15 people all just listing off. Hell yeah. And I think that feels very affirming. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's very different from uh, like, I don't want to call it more professional, but products that I've been a part of that have been from higher or larger companies because they have to be more formal. They have to be, they have to have sure. a very, very formal process for everything. Whereas for this one, uh, I, I've said nothing in one chat for a few weeks. So they've been talking art back and forth and they released one piece of art for one of the characters in one of their adventures. And my one line in like three weeks has been, of course you get the most fucking metal piece of art here. Jesus. <laughs> and that's it. That's all I've said in a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> it's just that it's fun. It's nice. It's smooth. I'm talking with everybody individually, which helps me keep active. I get to balance between different people and what they're doing and different ideas. I'm not stuck in a rut or grinding into a pit, which is what it feels like when I have to focus on one project for too long mm-hmm. without doing something else. So I know that in the creation of especially your your first book, that you you've spoken a little bit about having to to connect with the source material, right? With with mythologies, with, you know, historical bits and baubles, and just, you know, all the ephemera that goes into a, a, a real world setting, I guess is a fine way to put it, uh, and then translate that into a fantasy setting. Um, so can you kind of like speak a little bit about your experience as, as not just a project manager and someone who's like, oh yeah, I'm doing research, but also as someone who you know, you, you've mentioned a little bit almost is kind of reconnecting or connecting maybe for the first time with that part of, of, of you and of, of your history and your family's history. It's difficult. Um, if you have a heritage ties into a country that's been damaged by colonialism, 
mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult to actually connect to your heritage because something something will persist. Some things like food mm-hmm. or some pieces of art or certain stories will survive. But for the most part, everything else is going to be either lost or inaccessible. You know, we've got a monster in our book called the Tiburones, uh, but that's just Spanish for shark. <laughs> We don't, we don't actually have the full word for it because that word is lost to us. Some people have made some newer words for it, but like at the end of the day, like we don't have that original word anymore. Yeah. Working on that first book was very, very painful when it came to research, both just emotionally and physically getting actual information in front of us. Mm-hmm. I've got a book in my, in my library, in my digital library, and the, they've, there's been like less than three, maybe four physical print runs of that book Wow, since the 90s. And so the book is like maybe a hundred pages long, 200, I think I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and there's, there, there cannot be like a thousand copies in the world. You know, I got a hold of, P- of a PDF of that book and it took me a month to find it. A little <laughs> month of just searching every day for, for a copy, physical wow. or PDF. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find it. And eventually a very nice organization just sent me a copy and said, Hey, don't tell people you got it from us. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> dope. No sweat. Uh, Hell yeah. and yeah, and super helpful. I got what I needed, and uh, then I then we made a subclass and some death stuff after it because it, it's it deals with spiritual beliefs and about the soul. It's oh, called cool. the Soul Book. It's incredibly hard to find a copy of. But there's also a book called the Body Book, which is even rarer. How <laughs> difficult getting a copy of the Soul Book was. It's that difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> to to the soul book in terms of rarity, you know. And I found it by complete chance in the depths of the internet. <laughs> We're talking like page ten of of a Google search. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I, I told my researchers, and they're like, "Wait, can you send me a copy? I don't have a copy." And I'm talking about people who've been researching the stuff for like the past five years or fifteen years, depending on who you ask. On our team, you know, this knowledge is not readily available. It is not immediately nearby. Mm-hmm. we did all that research we went through all the pain of going through all this knowledge and not not just like you know learning about it but actually feeling yeah. actually filipino because it seems it seems like a made-up thing at this point but when i wrote the subject of being filipino with lucia originally i was very very bashful about it i was very shy about it because i was like well it's cool that I'm meeting someone who's Filipino and not part of this extreme religious group that I was born into. But also, I hope they don't find it weird that I'm just like, oh my God, are you Filipino? I'm Filipino. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And now, and nowadays, I'm akin to Bart banging on the pots and pans outside of Homer's <laughs> doorway going like, I am great. <laughs> I am here. Mm-hmm. You know? Is anyone else here? Uh, come on over. Let's hang out. Yeah, it's that slow transition from just being some person around to being someone who is, what, what what is that quote from that one article? It's uh, in order to reap the in order to get the rewards of being loved, we have to go through the mortifying ordeal of being known. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that process of becoming known, mm-hmm. of being a, pub, a more public figure about being Filipino. Because I know a bunch of people who are Filipino people who just didn't talk about it. Yeah, sure. Or people who said they're Filipino, or they'd say that they're half Filipino, or they're Filipino American. Uh, I detest the label Phil M, but people really put themselves however they want. I'm not, I'm not the cops. Not for you. <laughs> yeah, it's not for me. Um, but just being a Filipino person, 
all at once felt like, uh, wow, this is a very small field. And also, Jesus, there's more than Joe Coy. Thank God. <laughs> uh-huh. So this is something that I, I really enjoy about world building and adventure building, right? It's just taking little seeds from things and kind of pulling on it and extrapolating it and slamming it together with other things. What was your guys's process, not just generally doing that and taking it from mythology, but doing it in a way that captures the spirit or essence of the time period and culture that you guys were, were exploring and doing it in a way that was also, I would imagine, a very personal experience, like you've said, in a very kind of like you were you were also learning as you were going. Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like and also how you kind of like compartmentalized it, I guess, and kind of made it into a structure that turned into a book? Sure. No, we have a lot in the book. Um, originally, the book was just going to be like two classes, a single island, and like maybe mm -hmm. 10 monsters. Uh, and it's, it's not much that. bigger. <laughs> it's yeah. much bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. And that came about from a conversation I had with just going, hey, we need to have more stuff in here if we want people to actually engage with this. You know, we have the two classes, but that's a whole lot for players to engage with. We need to have more in here. And that's how it exploded into what it is now, you know? But putting stuff in there was this process of seeing what is normally included in like a, a full mm -hmm. campaign setting. What does it need to play in there realistically? Like, I remember growing up, I I would have these different campaign settings for D&D, &D, and they'd be fully complete as long as you knew some base, some bare-bone rules from the core book, you mm -hmm. know? I went with that mentality. But I had a lot of pages to fill. <laughs> yeah. So filling out, filling this book out involved a lot of research for any one individual thing uh -huh. and figuring out this figuring out this middle field that, that I kind of became aware of that I call fantastical representation, mm -hmm. which is in between, you know, lying about something and make it very tourist sensationally. You know, it's where you get the brochure or the early or the advertisement from the early 2000s of come to the mysterious exotic yep. Philippines, <laughs> check out the dangerous jungles, watch out for the strange, mysterious creatures that lurk in the forest and yep. keep an eye out for their beautiful women. It's like, Jesus, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? This, this is this is what I'm sold about my own hair. Fuck yeah, this. Right. <laughs> uh, and then being very dry and being very textbook about things. Mm -hmm. You know, being exciting and and being showing off a very fun version of something without actually outright lying about it. Because it'd be super easy to lie about this stuff. It'd be super easy to give this all just the same like yep. marketing shenanigans and talking very big about it and talking with these verbs of ancient and wise and mysterious and far right. away. Um, but that's A, Orientalism, and yeah, B, right. <laughs> just straight-up horseshit. We never had it to do that. It means so little, you know? If yeah, like... it means so little. And we never do that. We never did that in any marketing. We never did it in any part of it. We were just very happy about all the stuff. We wanted to share that happiness with people. This is stuff that we love. This is mm -hmm. us boiled down to our roots. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to love who we were for the first time. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of, of history uh, in college, I was a major in history, and I, I I always enjoyed finding kind of the threads and the narrative and kind of the like cultural like mindset of of different cultures. Obviously, it's very vastly simplified, but 
Was there anything, especially as you were kind of zoning in on this particular area, this particular time period, and translating that into kind of a narrative structure of a book that struck you about it, where it's like, oh, this was a a time and place that valued this or viewed the world like this? Or did you learn anything along those lines as part of the process? Or was it just too, too much and too diverse and too messy? And you just had to kind of wade through it. Um, the through line for me was through animism, mm -hmm. which to give the cliff notes on that, you know, very complex spiritual belief <laughs> uh, is the belief that anything, everything has some spirits. Mm -hmm. Specifically in the Philippines, you know, if the more worshipped or the more needed a thing is, the more powerful it is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a blade of grass has a spirit, but might not have awareness as opposed to a single tree, which would have a spirit and, and some awareness, but entire forest would have all that and power, mm -hmm. you know, compare a stream to a river, to an ocean, mm -hmm. you know, which one is more powerful, which one is more needed, which one is more useful. And it came about this idea of, you know, you can't survive alone in the world. You rely on other things, on other people. Yeah. And animism can reflect that. You know, we didn't have kings and barons and lords. We had Datus, which primarily had power because they shared. They gave to people around them and they were given power in return. Mm -hmm. It's this through line of you are only as good as the bonds you have whether it's a bond to the nature around you or to the people that are around you as well. How do you translate those sorts of themes into something theoretically crunchy and game designy like a D and D setting book? Um, you know, is it just like, is it just kind of setting details? Did you try to weave that into, into subclasses, into monsters or like, what was the process and kind of mindset you had to be in to, to integrate that into a game instead of just, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a research paper. It came out of just a lot of phrasings and a lot of Western RPGs rely on the same basic tropes repeated over and over and over and over and over. Certainly. And it relied on breaking away from tropes and breaking away from Western thought processes and what the Western mm -hmm. way of viewing the world. Yeah. Afraid of that, you know, this is just a numbers game. You know, and we're already talking about, uh, and I can't say this broadly because the Philippines is composed of a yes. bunch of different groups, a bit of a bunch of different ethnologistic groups spread out across a whole bunch of islands. Yes. <laughs> but at least speaking for a lot of like, uh, Bisaya culture, you know, there's a lot of warring, there's a lot of warrior caste cultures to a lot of these, to a lot of it. So like, the violence part wasn't, you know, alien to it, you know? Uh, we could translate the violence part of it pretty easily. It just required us fleshing out the world in a way that wasn't akin to just, oh, this is just Europe with a fresh kind of paint. Yes. Right. Which goes down to, you know, thinking about the world around you, approach the environment, approaching the people around you, and not just going, oh, I own this, I own that, this belongs to me. It was, this is there, and that is there. And mm -hmm. you have a relationship to that lake or that mountain or that volcano. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a matter of ownership. It was a matter of symbiosis. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So you guys are putting this, this growing in scope project together, doing 
it, it, tireless amounts of not just research, but research. So you are able to do research. And uh, I certainly, and I think a lot of people on the internet found out about this project when it got featured on Critical Role. I think like three times, I think now that the Sina Una setting has been has been mentioned or talked about or whatever on Critical Role. Did, did things change for you or is it just like, ah? That was that was cool that that happened. <laughs> and yet the first time you got mentioned because of a, a Black Friday sale, and I was like, "Oh, cool, got uh, mentioned, mm -hmm. neat." Um, the second time was uh, <laughs> the second time was part of uh, the opening of Campaign Three <laughs> uh, as part of a musical number, and then the time when it was officially talked about with the hardcover release, yeah, uh, is in my Twitter profile banner. Yes, and it I, might remain that way forever. It's of, a really of, good picture. <laughs> yeah, of, of Sam Regal in a, in a cat suit holding my holding my book. <laughs> um, I only found out about any of it because I would I'd be working or doing something else, and all of a sudden I would get like twenty Discord emails yeah. like, "Hey, have you seen this?" And I'm like, yeah. "I I don't keep up with Critical Role. What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what's going on." Um, just me freaking out because you're like. Yo, congratulations. And I'm like, hey, thank you. For what? Huh? What's going on, though? <laughs> yep. Everybody's saying that. What's going on? Oh, Sina Uno was on Critical Role. What do you mean? I didn't pay anything. <laughs> mm -mm. And LCA didn't pay anything. So just one one huge shock after another every single time that it's happened. It's been a delightful surprise each time, but I... I'm made viciously aware of it each time it happens. <laughs> yeah. And well after the fact. It's or as it's happening or what have you. Yeah. Like ten seconds after the fact, <laughs> which means I can't go into the I can't easily go to the stream and just watch what happened. I have to like rewind time and yes. on like the currently <laughs> being made VOD to figure out what is going on right now. Obviously you guys funded your original Kickstarter. I think you got like a hundred and forty or fifty percent of your goal, something along those lines. Did Critical Role, did that play a part of that? Or did you guys just through kind of your own word of mouth and awareness and that kind of stuff reach that goal and then now have kind of like continued to piggyback that onto your latest campaign? Uh, yeah, we were not, like, to present day, we're not involved with Critical Role. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> but like, the first book, we were never mentioned by anybody. It was literally just with C and I spreading you know, talking about Sinatra through word of mouth. Uh, she has she has always had a very large online following, and I would be going to conventions and saying hi to people and being a little asshole and baiting people into asking <laughs> about what I'm working on. Because, like, ask anybody who's boothed a convention, they've been held hostage by a nerd. The, yeah, <laughs> that is my talk at, Who will just talk at them. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I do, which is sneaky and underhanded, was I'd be <laughs> looking at their stuff and I'd say, yeah, I want to see what other people are working on in the industry, and I'm kind of new, and mm -hmm. I just want to see what's out there. And they'd be, and they would go, "Oh, you, you work, you're making something? Very oh yeah, I'm just working on a thing. What are you working on? <laughs> Reel them in, <clears throat> reel them in. Yeah, which is a very cheap thing to do. I, I'm fully aware of what I'm doing. I'm fully aware of like, <laughs> it's not the worst thing, but it's not, it's not the most over the table thing uh, to do. Well, talking you to know, it's kind of one of those things where like everyone gets there's the game to be played to a certain extent and you're being authentic about it and you're showing interest and you know, it's a, yeah. at least a grayer area for certain. Yeah. That was literally just our marketing strategy. Me going to conventions, talking about it, making threads on Twitter and just sharing around whenever we were hitting my trucks campaign. And that got us uh 42 K on Indiegogo. Yeah. Where 
non-tech dreams got to die for the most part. <laughs> yeah. We, we fund in the very final week, like the Monday of. Wow. Yeah. It was not grand. <laughs> I'd imagine a that was experience. pretty stressful. <laughs> I was, it was the Friday morning of PAX U 2019 <sighs> and me watching the countdown go to zero seconds. <laughs> it's, it's, it's painful. Yeah. <laughs> but you did it, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then three years later, we run a new campaign on Kickstarter rather than Indiegogo. Cause again, non-tech dreams got to die for the most part. There are exceptions, but they're exceptions. Mm -hmm. And we got 140 kick because uh, when we started off the first book, we didn't have a publisher. We got a publisher via accident. <laughs> um, and they're lovely. Love working with them. They, the work's been uh, very, very wonderful. Press, right? Is who your yep, publisher? Yep. yep. Yeah, Hipper has been very Humble, lovely to work uh, with. Who did the uh, Humblewood and, I mean, about tons of other stuff. Humblewood, heck no, they're being publisher for a bunch of other people as well. Yeah, tons of, um, tons of projects. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it's, <laughs> we got to deal with them by accident. I'm always going <laughs> to laugh about that. But we didn't have any connections at all when we did the first one. Uh, at PAX, we made the, we made the connection with, with uh, Hit Point Press. And then we started working on the book. And then three years later, we, we now have this new book, this new project, which, you know, got a, a healthy amount of funding, nearly 100K more than yeah. the first book. Which is such an utter fucking relief. I have no idea how much we're allowed to swear in this. I'm working on swearing. Oh, less, but it's I, such I, an utter that, I meant relief. to put that as part of our our uh, you know the opening spiel. Yeah, you cusses are very allowed. Piss shit ass fuck. Okay, um, <laughs> we, we caught up for the the other forty minutes where we weren't cussing, and we'll just yeah. we'll just really layer it in now. Yeah, uh, but doing this new one, getting 140 has been such an utter relief. Uh, it's, it's weird because we, we did the vast majority of research. We went through all that pain and now we're, we're getting the rewards of being loved. Yeah. And it's just weird because <laughs> like, yep. D during the campaign, I'd be talking to Lucia going like, remember the first book? Remember the first book? Remember the first book? Remember what that was like? <laughs> and like, this is so different from that, but I'm having, <laughs> I'm having, the the ghosts of projects yeah. past now haunt me. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, to to quote, uh, what was that one production? What was that one play production company? Uh, to quote Starkid Productions, uh, it's not PTSD. I'm just vividly remembering things. <laughs> yeah, right. Perfect. That's yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so was this always? Was this the adventure book? Like, did you guys? always have kind of a roadmap of like, hey, we're doing the campaign setting and it's robust and it's going to be a whole thing. And we hope next thing is an adventure book. Or when did that kind of enter into the conversation? So if you go to the original Indiegogo, we talk about how there's an adventure in the book. And if you look at the book now, there's no adventure yep. in that book. <laughs> I remember um, that. Yeah, that, that, that's not being a thing because I said, I don't want to put a like 10 page adventure in the back of like a 300 plus page book. Because that is unwieldy at best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this book has existed in different ideations and iterations. Uh, at one point, we were being recommended to make a Patreon, which we did not want to do. Uh, at one point, we were going to be working on this in private, uh, but hadn't been funded for it, but things fell through because the economy and one particular anti-vaxxer, which fuels... <laughs> which, it's a sore <laughs> point for me. That is a... <sighs> 
that is a specific and and frustrating sounding experience. <laughs> yes. And I cannot talk about it publicly in mm -hmm. detail, but there's one person yep. who got a who got a fucked us on this in particular. Um but eventually came to pass that we, we were gonna get a small uh, we we're gonna start small with working on getting some art assets, playing out what the book would be, running a crowdfunding campaign and making the book from that. Uh, and it took us three years, but you know, we finally have it and well, it took me three years to finally get the deluxe cover of Cena Uno that I always wanted, so I'm happy. <laughs> and I will say we haven't I haven't talked about it specifically. The art in all of these books are just oh beautiful. Like Google Google it. Like check it out. It's colorful, it's vibrant, there's energy, there's action. So if you are someone who is a visual person to get sucked into a setting or to a book, like th this is a good a good one for it. Yeah, it's Lucia does a fantastic job of sourcing artists of different styles, so we're not just appearing like we're trying to copy the wizard's look. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it is d definitely distinct. It is its own thing for sure. Kickstarter is it is well covered, but still very not well understood, especially by people who haven't gone through the experience before. So, what lessons did you guys kind of kind of learn that might be useful for others? Marketing is key. Mm -hmm. Marketing is pivotal. You can make the best book in the world and it won't matter if no one sees it. Mm -hmm. uh, talking to influencers, working with backer kit, working with emailing lists, talking to people about what you can do for deals and like getting the name of your book out there. Uh, sponsoring people with active participatory audiences. There are some people online who have like a huge audience, but they only get like some mm -hmm. interaction with their with their stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas you might talk to someone with a smaller following than that, but they, they have a higher percentage of people who are actually active. Um, marketing any way you can to get your book in front of people, just because that is that is the way to get people to actually buy your stuff. We got 42K on Indiegogo, which is not the best platform for discoverability for yep. a project like ours. And we made 42K purely through word of mouth. If we had done it through Kickstarter, we would have gotten a lot more and made the, made the entire process a lot easier for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something we learned firsthand. And it's, I please never learn that lesson the hard way. <laughs> just I'm giving I'm giving you the easy way. Just don't do it. Yeah, take their advice for it. Just just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy peasy. Um, Kickstarter has been a lot better for us, but we also just have had a lot of support when it comes to marketing. Mm -hmm. And I I cannot understand the fact that marketing is just so pivotal when it comes to getting your book out in front of people. Because I mean, like it's a hundred thousand dollars difference. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money. Yes, <laughs> and especially as you're as you're working with uh, all these different writers and with art assets and all that kind of stuff, I'm I'm sure it makes a big difference for them, for the product, for your work, for everything. So, uh, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, and how many how many adventures are going to be packaged in this? I don't know if I saw on the Kickstarter or don't remember from the Kickstarter rather. Thirteen. Nice. Were you in the process of kind of putting that together and and working with uh, folks and whatnot? As of as of right now, everybody knows what they're doing. We've already gone through like a pitch process and refining cool. process, so we all know what we need to do. Um, it's just a matter of going through it. Yeah, which doing it. We're we're starting in full. Come you know later on this week. Awesome. Cool. That's. Very I'm cool. saying this on the eighth as we record this, so yeah, like, pick it as you will, people. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that you're really excited about for this book? There's refining, there's, I'm sure, throwing things in the garbage that didn't work. But is there anything right now that you're like, when people get a load of this, or like, this is the 
encapsulation of what the vibes of this book are going to be that you're that you you know think people would love honestly it's public but uh shark people <laughs> i mean straight up yeah like, hell yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's the shark people it's the crab people <laughs> it's we've announced most of the things that will be that. in yeah. here i don't know it's hard for me to really specify one thing without like giving too much away totally the stuff in the book currently but like i'm excited i'm excited just to have a lot of freedom with this yeah i'm excited mm-hmm. to just have fun honestly yeah obviously the first book wasn't fun but it was just a lot of like the crashing realization of like my culture definitely definitely mm-hmm. um made the tone a lot more serious mm-hmm. you know what you know if you're talking to a dm right who is looking to to inject anything into their campaign is looking to get resources is looking to get inspiration whatever why why should a dm look at sinuna you know um especially if they're one who's steeped in a lot of those kind of western fantasy lord of the rings air quote medieval kind of game styles what what does this product in this world and this tone offer offer to a game do you think it offers uh, a different view of the world at large mm-hmm. it offers a world that is disconnected from the lords and and daddies of <laughs> generic dark age europe mm-hmm. um it offers a look into a world that's just a lot more interconnected and less just arbitrarily distanced yeah it also gives a world that feels just a little bit more alive mm-hmm. literally uh, the lens of animism or just the fact that we you are just some yeah you aren't just some stranger in a strange land you are someone who lives among these people mm-hmm. you aren't some visitor this is where you live this, these are your neighbors and that is a whole different experience than just wondering about going to a new place with new people uh and looking for new work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So another thing that struck me in in the answer before this too was also, you know, talking about the freedom and the joy and the kind of creation that's that's already happened and is is still ahead of you. So I wanted to ask also, just generally, you've been doing D&D and tabletop role-playing games for a long time now, your whole life, basically, uh, in one one form or another, playing and creating and writing or running D and D, like what what excites you about that? Like what has kept you at the table, virtual or otherwise, or kept you at you know at at books, kept you researching things for a month to get a cool supplement and cool setting book just right? What you know what what's the juice for you? Uh, I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna <laughs> sound like a bully. Uh, it's Ooh, I'm very excited it's now. giving a new rise or a new shock to my players. Oh, yeah. Genuinely, I I love putting people and players through new things that they can't just, like, blanket response to, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Because, look, I, I can go through a video game, and I can treat every encounter of a certain thing the same way over and over and over, mm-hmm. you know? It doesn't matter. There's no difference to me. And for my players, you know, unless there's some variety to it, it's going to feel the same no matter what. But, like, I, I love being able to expand what I'm able to work with, expand what I'm able to do, just on the pure basis of it's really fun to shock my players sometimes. <laughs> yeah. To, and break I, them out of patterns, you know, for yeah, sure. Break them out of patterns, but also just to give them something new to go through, mm-hmm. you know, something new to experience. It's a little fulfilling, honestly. Mm-hmm. 
um, whether that is going through Cine Una or going through uh, my own homebrew games, I just really like throwing new things that my players don't have a blanket response to. At yes. Them. Just stop them in their tracks. <laughs> yeah. Make them think, make them figure stuff out. Yeah. What what kind of stories do you do you like? Not just to write or run, to consume and to create. Have you noticed, especially as you've been kind of steeped in content creation professionally for the last couple of years, any themes, any you know, kind of recurring anything uh, that you've kind of like learned about yourself through playing and creating for D and D. Gosh, that is such a deep. That is such a fucking complex question. I uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. I like connecting with people. Mm-hmm. I like talking with people. Um, I grew up being a very anxious kid uh, to the point where I would have trouble ordering fast food. Uh, just being totally unable to talk to someone to the point of just physically shaking from anxiety. Mm-hmm. But I loved people. I loved how interesting people can be. Mm-hmm. And you know, working working on D and D stuff, playing D and D. Not to say that D and D has given me social skills, because mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of D and D players out there who lack a lot of social skills. <laughs> yep. You yep. know, but it's just playing games has allowed me to see just how much I like talking to people, yeah, and connecting with people, despite the fact that I spend most of my days alone and quiet working <laughs> on stuff. It can be both. Oh yeah. I mean, everybody's full of dualities, right? Yes, absolutely. And do you find that you, when you're making stuff, whether it is for your home game, whether it's for the book, whether it's for whatever, are you are you someone who is who likes to create based on people, I guess, and like characters and character-driven stuff? Are you a situational kind of person, like you said, of like, I'm going to create something that my, my players are not ready for, <laughs> or, you know, kind of what, what do you err on? Or is it a mix? Uh, I think any, any great game has to be a mix. Mm-hmm. I think any great game has to be, has to have input in some way, passive or active from everybody at the table, mm-hmm. you know, and it might not be a thing like everything. I want this theme and this dramatic thing to happen, but it's like, if you make a character who has a father, I mean, somewhere around the world, there's a father figure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm trying to think of, of how to how to put this. Mm-hmm. I ran a game for a while, and I had a player whose story arc was going to be: I am the bastard son of someone who mm-hmm. was of noble lineage, and I was left in some corner pocket of the world. And one day I'm going to find him, kill him, and take my fortune. Oh mm-hmm. yeah! And then he met his father. In, in like session 20 mm-hmm. <laughs> at like level at like level five yeah <laughs> uh, level five six and my players i told them i like running games that run from like level one to like 18 19 and so that compares my his response was absolutely Wait, what do you mean now is what i meet him yeah right. shit yeah <laughs> what's going on uh-huh. you know yep that creates a kind of external panic which i deeply enjoy <laughs> um yeah. those a character who Whose relationship to their parent was this was adoptive parent, and as he as she spoke now as an adult to her adoptive sister and to other people, it became a little suspicious as to why her father adopted her in the first place. Mm. And I could just easily fit slot that into whatever all the stuff that I was doing already. Yep. Finding places where I can I can easily 
smooth in who or what my players are, I love doing. Mm-hmm. Not not to like bend what they want or bend what they've put into the world into what I'm doing, but making their stuff part of the overall st- some of the essential stones to make this arch. Mm-hmm. I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, and I'm sure it's complicated by you being co-director of a book. Are you a DM? Or are you a player or are, is it all just like amorphous or kind of like in your heart of hearts, how do you identify, including as a writer or whatever in terms of tabletop? No, I've always been a DM. <laughs> uh, if I count, if I had to include my hours, DMing versus my hours playing, yeah. uh, it would be a ratio higher than 20 to one. Yeah. <laughs> a real forever DM kind of, yeah. kind of situation. Like, I, I genuinely love it. I genuinely yeah. enjoy it. Uh, my favorite times playing these games has come about from me being a DM. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's been uh, someone setting fire to my players' notes, <laughs> um, having to deal with my ogres being trapped in a room full of summoned wasps, or cutting <laughs> off the gunslinger's arm. Like I've, I've, I've enjoyed this stuff a lot, and primarily it's come from me being a DM. Mm-hmm. You know, you speak very fondly of of DMing and of also prodding your players in ways that only the cruelest and best DMs like to prod. Um, Have there been any times where you have felt like particularly emotional at the tabletop, unlocked something or found something or gotten to explore something that was really, really meaningful for you? And obviously that includes all the work on the books too. So I'll say this, that I have a lot of years of acting under my belt. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to do a lot of Shakespeare and I, I've done years of oh, improv. Cool. So if I get a little bit of a windup, I can make myself cry. <laughs> uh, on a stream, uh, for a scene on a stream, um, working, working through a, a part of the story with one of my players, uh, I was playing that character's mother and talking about how uh, she doesn't recognize this person anymore. You may look like my daughter, but mm-hmm. I, I did not give you that name. And constantly asking her, what is your name? And the player would give the character's name and they go, no, that's, what I, that's not what I named you. Um, and it turned out to be a whole like magic memory thing. Mm-hmm. But like being, being shouted at mm-hmm. by your nearly crying, very angry fantasy mother uh, got, got my player to cry. And we were to clear here, we were good afterwards. I was checking in during and after what was going good. on. Yeah, so right. sure that we were on, always good. You know, on the level. I'm not, I'm not that level of monster. <laughs> right. You're not actively trying to make them feel bad non-consensually. Yeah. 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 No, everything was above board, but I, stuff like that. It's me being the character and the character being emotional. Rarely has it been me getting actually emotional. I can't remember the last time that I got actually emotional being me playing mm-hmm. the game. Mm-hmm. other than just pure rapturous joy if i pull something off right yeah right oh well i mean yeah i mean duh yeah. obviously <laughs> uh, i mean if we're going into if we're going to that territory I, I joked about this at a panel at pax u 2021 but i i was doing a panel called bad advice from great dms mm-hmm. we're at the table you know we got prompted hey what's the worst thing you've done at a table mm. <laughs> and one person was like well i i stopped a person from flying or uh, I stole someone's weapon, uh, and very monotone, very flatly, I said, I made my players afraid of the color red for three months. <laughs> and the person to my left immediately responded with, wait, hold up, everybody. Players? 
<laughs> uh, and my friend to that person's left was, yeah, players. <laughs> Had firsthand knowledge, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I made my players genuinely, genuinely afraid of the color red for three months. Well, now crazy. I need to know, how did you, how did you do it so that I can take notes? <laughs> and... Um, so it, it was a very, it was a very slow burn, uh, horror campaign, slow burn as, the more you learn, the more things are connecting in very, very awful ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For session one, I kept on describing this like red fungal growth that was moving around or that just felt raw, you know, Deep. like you, you they, would be, <laughs> they would find a horse and the horse would like, you know, if you cut it, dealt too much damage, it would like spray out this like fungal, mm-hmm. fungal blood. Content warning for everybody, by the way. Sorry about this. Um, <laughs> blood and mild gore. Um, you know, it'd be kind of horrific. They would they would shoot down a wolf, and it would explode in this fist in this fungal viscera. Like this is awful. Um, and they'd go they would go into a cave, and they'd see all this 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 fungal stuff all across the wall. And they saw the person trying to rescue. They walk up to them, and they try to pull them off the wall. And they see that some of the stuff is trying to go inside it. It's going through wounds. And they realize, wait a second, this isn't fungus. This is meat acting like fungus uh. <laughs> uh and this was session one <laughs> no um, big deal just session one yeah easy yeah session one um and then you know second session the some of the things i started to click of just what they were dealing with directly naming, naming it by name because like you know they cleared a cottage in the woods and they went downstairs the unofficial went downstairs to check things out and she saw this like red painted silhouette of a man um, and she was looking at it, all the different things around it, and she looked up at the face of it. And on the face, there were just just eyes looking at her. Like, human eyes looking Ooh. at her. And she <laughs> screamed and ran upstairs. And the ranger took out her spear and went downstairs to look at it. And the arm of the silhouette had moved to smear the face where the eyes were. <gasps> and then things got progressively worse. <laughs> and it went worse from there. <laughs> yeah, because that was session two. That is like a that is like a thirty second sequence from session two. Yeah. <laughs> well, that seems. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would be uh, the cautious of the yeah. color red from, yeah, from just those two minutes of story. Yeah, I, that. Yep, that's that yeah. tracks. <laughs> and everything ramped up from there over the course of like I want to say seven, eight, nine sessions. Uh, it, <laughs> it just did not ever get better from there. It got yeah. worse from there. <laughs> rest assured, uh, rest assured, the term Corpse Mountain became literal. Oof, oof, oofa doofa. <laughs> yeah, that was in a good way. Like, in a like, I mean, <laughs> hell yes, obviously that's sick as hell, but also oof. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were going through the sewers and they came oh, and even worse. Yeah, and they had heard rumors about like, because they're just trying to do a, a quick bounty, you know. They had rumors, Easy they had job, rumors sure. of, yeah, they had rumors of like this uh, religious group that went down to the sewers and just didn't come back up. You know, chill stuff. Cool, regular, normal. I'm sure nothing occult or eldritch yeah. or horrific happened. No, yeah, no problem. Uh, and they went to the sewers, and like the ranger was talking to the rat, and the rat were leaving around, uh, and then they were walking towards this openish area. And they saw a pile of bodies poking up out of the, out, out from the floor level. Not great. And that, as they got closer, they realized that the floor wasn't actually a floor. The floor was just this like uh, walkway around the room. 
Mm-hmm. That's the, <laughs> and, and there's a pit, there's a hole in the middle of the floor that the that this pile was poking out of. And they get to the walkway and look down, and there's just this literal mountain of corpses going down to uh, like a Scrooge McDuck situation. Yeah, where right. it's like <laughs> like a hill of gold pans out into and like a, a an unknowable depth amount of coins, you know, mm-hmm. but just replace the coins with corpses. Yeah. And they're all just devoid of any kind of color, like like fre- like fresh <laughs> Google Docs white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and they're like, "This is messed up. This is messed up. This is not yes. cool. What yeah. are we supposed to do here? Well, we found them, but what do we do now?" And then they saw this uh, hand burst out from the mountain. It's not good. And the skin's all red. The fingernails are red. The hair is all red. So the good. sleeve is all red. The cut it put itself out and another hand comes out and it's all red too along with the clothing and it just pull itself out and the suit that it's wearing is all red and the vest is all red the the shirt underneath is all red the trousers the shoes the the hat the hair the ears the mouth the tongue the teeth the eyes all red <laughs> the man in red and he looks over at the players and goes it's so wonderful to see you all. I hope you'll stay. It's just been so long since we've had any. And the warlock says, I don't like this. Uh, I'll blast <laughs> him. Because, like, why would you listen to this person? Yep, yep. Why would you ever listen to this person? Not unreasonable. And the moment that the Eldritch Blast hits, it's no longer the man in red. It's just now a fresh corpse, a clean kill, that tumbles down the, the mountain down to the steps below and then there's some silence and then a hand bursts out from the yeah. mountain yeah <laughs> and their hand and the body and the head and legs and goes and it was a like a, a normal hand right i assume no Just no like no a normal... you know what's going on you know what's going on <laughs> man right clender goes great shots you're growing day by day if only your mother could see you now and the rock shoots him again. I and mean, now, fair. And now it's this, it's this young person who's now who has who's screaming because she just got hit, and and they're they're hanging on the side of the corpse mountain, screaming out because they have no idea what's going on. And then a hand comes out of the mountain, and climbs out, and the players are all freaking out. And I think this was session six. <laughs> things escalated once again yeah I think and we things got agree. worse and things got worse may yeah. we may we all be able to describe our dm'd games as and then things got worse from there <laughs> yeah but the, stuff like that is why my why my players became afraid of the color red for a few months yeah that and makes sense and i think fits into uh you know some of the other things you've said about well yeah this is a weird situation what do you do <laughs> there's yeah. no there's not a lot of templates of corpse mountain you know in yeah terms no of how to react. Sad, sadly sadly one of my players admitted that he's a big guy and, you know we'd be playing at his, at his apartment right before the pandemic hit uh and then for a while over zoom on that particular campaign and whenever a session ended he would chuck his windows and chuck both <laughs> his doors go to his one bedroom lock it behind him <laughs> and just be very paranoid about every sound that he heard. What a, what a blessing. May, <laughs> may we all be able to horrify our players 
in such dramatic real world fashions consensually but yeah. also yes but also that yeah. <laughs> most of my players these days know to expect to become either deeply horrified or deeply emotional yeah or both being yeah. afraid is an emotion i guess in a way yeah uh <laughs> the last the last quick question or maybe not so quick the last question i had for you before we got into the daunting lightning round that is ahead is that you've you know you have mentioned marketing as being you know a, a key part of your guys's success uh you have a a you know a quote-unquote platform on twitter and so do, do many other people who are working on this book and and especially when you are working on a big public book like that and a public book that is so so personal so experiential and also just outside the norm of what ttrpg content is uh, any amount of being online is is difficult i'd imagine it was especially difficult doing all of that but I, i'm curious just generally speaking what has what has your experience been like being a quote-unquote public figure you know kind of in as much as any of us ttrpg people are public figures who aren't on critical role been weird it's been <laughs> weird uh again i was a kid and then i spent 16 years being a loser uh so like i it's been very very weird and very very sudden and i'm adjusting to it uh like recently i passed 8k followers which is not a whole lot in the grand scheme of like being an influencer but it's still a lot of people who yes, are looking at what a I lot do. of human beings <laughs> yeah so it's just weird having people look at me and track what I'm doing and want to see what I'm doing next. Mm -hmm. It's just a very, very weird adjustment for me. Uh, and I think that comes about only from me just having a lot of time that I spend being introspective and observing my own life, just trying to let him like, um, up and up with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but genuinely, I don't know if it's ever something I'm going to be able to get used to. And I kind of don't want to get used to it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You know? Very reasonable. Yeah. I think the moment you go, well, of course I get this kind of following. You're just a shithead. Yes, <laughs> it, it's that's the, it's hard to come back from that. I think, and it just yeah. goes like, and it like gets I, worse from there. Yeah, yeah. I think like, on some level, if you go like, yeah, well, I was on this huge project. Of course, I get people who follow me. You know, that's different. It's yes. just like, of course, I look at people who be interested in what I'm doing. I'm special. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Have have has anyone reached out to to you or you guys about? about the level of representation that you guys have brought and the level of of visibility i guess that that you mentioned you didn't have kind of going into this project um have you been able to to experience that hopefully and and hear from people yeah nearly every week for the past wow. uh couple of years more so ever since the pdf got released especially once the hardcover got released mm -hmm. uh, i will what often get an email here and there or we will get a review or we will get a letter of some kind a couple of times physical. And that was odd. Um, <laughs> odd in that it came with a, came with like a book, not odd as in some strangers found my address. Kind yeah. of weird. We get people who talk about how, how glad they are to see mm -hmm. themselves in fantasy. We get letters from people talking about how this isn't, this isn't really a, just a D and D book or a game book. This is a history book. Yeah. You know, our book is used in some college courses in Manila and some high school courses Fascinating. In, in the Philippines and in America. 
there's a couple of D and D clubs around America who use our books mm -hmm. uh, as as both reference material and also just like things that they want to keep using. Mm -hmm. um, there is an organization in California devoted to like you know youth outreach and teaching. Our book is in their library for a reason. It's been. I think that's been the one thing that I've had to adjust to the most. It's, it's taking me the longest time to get my head around. Yeah. Because, like, for me, I'm used to seeing the Una. I'm yeah. used to being <laughs> in that world and living in it. Yep. And my my journey throughout the book has been very internal, you know. Me going, this is really cool. I wish I had this growing up. Or I wish I had known this growing up. Or I wish, or I want, or me, 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 me. And I did never really thought about how other people really see it sure other than cool this is gonna be representative and it's gonna be cool and i'm mm -hmm. not gonna fuck it up because i don't want to be a mistake in history because <laughs> yeah, good you motivator know, yeah because like i'm used to people fucking up uh, filipino representation <laughs> i'm very much used to it you know that was kind of the pressure that we were under of just wanting want to make sure that we were not just like that mm -hmm. and i didn't really think about what that all would entail i tell people you can yeah you can imagine a million things, but you can't actually picture a million things. Yeah. You can imagine the concept, but not the actual execution of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could imagine what it'd be like for someone to look at this book and see themselves and feel relief. I had no idea that it would take such visual forms or would manifest in very distinct and personal ways for people. Mm -hmm. There's a guy who's putting together a live play of Sina Una stuff in a studio with a bunch of Filipino dishes uh this week wow you know? cool <laughs> yeah and like this is a guy in california who, who writes for larps and whatnot and he's burning this you know uh oh, i think i did see, i think i did see that i don't know yeah. if it was on your twitter or sears twitter or both or whatever one of ours one like, of ours at least yeah yeah but like this is a guy who like you know i always thought was really cool from a distance because like, i had no idea how to approach some of these people sometimes yeah right as shit. it's still weird. again yeah absolutely 16 years as a loser i did not i did not brush <laughs> up my social skills during that time you know I never want to make a parasocial relationship, but like, uh, he fretted me on Twi on Facebook, you know, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man, this is amazing! I'm a huge fan of this guy." Um, and he, I saw that that message of his, and I'm like, "Hey, this looks really cool. Power to you!" And you know, he responded to me, go like, "Holy shit, you responded to me!" <laughs> and I'm like, "What the fuck do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> why are you this having is, this reaction? This is not what I. This is." This is not my understanding of this of this dynamic whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, at all. I'm I'm like, what do you mean? You know, we've got message from older generations of Filipino people, both here and abroad, are just very thankful that like this book exists and yeah. can represent what they're all about. You know, and I never thought about this stuff. I really should have. Um, like you said, it's difficult though. You know, to really, especially when you're steeped in it for as long as as long as you've been and you as long as you have to be right. Um, yeah, that like especially when it gets as big, but mm -hmm. then to actually, like you said, the actual humans who are actually connecting with the actual thing that you have actually done is that's, that's different is that's, that's hard to imagine uh, or hard, yeah. hard to like uh, predict or, or empathize with what happens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we've gotten stuff like this on a near weekly basis for a while now more and it got renewed again with the announcement of this book you know i have a friend who i admire her a great deal but i started following her before Sino got fully released mm -hmm. you know uh and she followed me once you know got released i thought oh neat cool new work on this project has gotten someone whose work mm -hmm. i admire who's 
personality admire, whose person I admire, you know, to, to follow me. That's neat. Uh, and then you start talking. And now they're a friend, you know? And it's just weird. So this stuff happens at the casual level and at the, the very real level mm-hmm. where I have to be careful of people forming parasocial relationships towards me now. Yeah. Yep. And that's that's so weird to me. It's, yes. <laughs> yep. Very strange. Now that you have gotten exposed to kind of the human factor, right? And the human difference that, that your work is doing, your being the collective work, of course. Um, does Has that enriched the experience for you? and enriched the work? And do you feel differently about the work now than you did kind of in the lead up? Or is the work still the work and the value comes from the work itself? The value still comes from the work itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try and maintain a very heavy divide yeah. between how I feel like responding to my work, good or bad, yeah, and how I feel about my work in general, mm-hmm. you know? Because I make a lot of, I, I've made some weird shit. <laughs> I've made some very oddball shit. And sometimes it's not the most mechanically deft. And I'm fine with that, mm-hmm. honestly. I don't really give a shit. But like, if I can w- make something out to, to satiate my high standards for like narrative flow and story presentation, then odds are I'm, per- and then like, I'm pretty confident that's going to appease a lot of people or make a lot of people happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, and that's very interesting to say, and I'm mm-hmm. too tired to really pay much attention to that beyond that. But like, I, how people respond to my work and how much people love and adore what me and my team does, doesn't affect how I go about my yeah. work. Yep. Because what they liked in the first place was the care put into it. Yes. Yeah. That totally mm-hmm. makes sense. And I think yeah. is, is. Is is the the path away from madness? At least <laughs> as as much as any path can be. That makes a lot of sense. Um, no. I think I think now we have entered into the final stretch of the reckless talk conversation, which means it is time for the lightning round. If you are ready, I will tell you there are no rules for the lightning round, other than all people get asked pretty much the same questions. I phrase it differently slightly sometimes there is no wrong answers it can be a one word answer and i will just kind of respectfully pause to be like ah that is all they're going to say cool great it can be a long-winded story it can be you know i don't really have a good answer for that and we will move on and that is fine um and again no wrong answers all are glorious and welcome here are you ready for the lightning round paladin let's go for it question one is your glass half full or half empty Half full. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? The dreams of other people when they're made and presented well. Um, I'm someone who can only, who literally can only think in terms of images. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my thoughts are not presented to me in text in any form. So when I talk, I'm just translating what I see as an image. And sometimes I'll come across an image so powerful that I don't have words. I am just happy in the enjoyment of experiencing it. Mm-hmm. What does not excite you creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Routine. What is your favorite sound? Uh, hearing the laughter of people that I work with. What sound do you hate? I cannot stand Discord notifications. <laughs> I try to be quiet on in these but uh, yes <laughs> yeah 
What is your favorite word? Energeia. What's what's that word? It's uh, a literary term that's inherently harder to find, but uh, a lot of people desc- describe it as a bright, unbearable reality. <laughs> uh, one person one person puts it as the feeling that is felt when a god touches down upon Earth, not in some guise, but as they actually are. Mm. Oh, cool. What is your least favorite word? Urethra. It's a <laughs> fucking painful word. <laughs> I'm just going to nod. I'm just nodding. Yes. Yeah. What tabletop role-playing game or D&D monster, and monster can be, of course, like the amorphous concept, uh, have you not faced or run that you would love to? There's this old monster from 3.5 D&D. And it is like a CR one monster. It is like very it's tiny size, but it's like a dire. It's like a very very vicious uh, aberrant mosquito that is naturally invisible. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a hassle, and they're supposed to come in, in uh, packs of three to six. Yeah. Yep. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And it can be a tabletop adventure. It can be a movie adventure. It could be one you went on, one you came up with, one you read, whatever. Uh, the Shackled City. It was a 3.5 D&D adventure path uh, published over the course of, I think, 13, 14 issues from Dragon Magazine mm-hmm. uh, back before it got canceled. I've run that adventure a couple times uh, from front to back. I have the Comedium hardcover. And I studied that adventure extensively for all throughout middle and high school. And studying that and how it functions it has informed a lot of how I go about uh, my design these days. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And again, can be yours, can be one you read, one you watched, one you know, an NPC that you interacted with. <laughs> so the cop-out answer. The cop-out answer is that I had a friend in high school who played a cleric named Father Oregano. Uh, <laughs> and uh, under the under the section that said looks, <laughs> he just wrote down friggin' sweet. <laughs> um, the serious response is uh, my friend, my childhood buddy, played a character named Dackett. Mm-hmm. And Dackett prepared me for anything that a player could drop me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there is not a person on this planet <laughs> who can catch me off guard. Because I played with my friend while he played Dackett. Yep. Because <laughs> um, we would play an adventure later on where he played a rogue. And this was a, a setting, a, an area, and a bunch of technology. And he got a bunch of laser guns and, like, staple gun them together. <laughs> and recreated that one scene from a Transformers movie where they're all just shooting lasers into the air randomly, you know? <laughs> He'd be shooting, like, you know, 10 laser shots at a time, but they'd all be at, like, minus 10, minus 15 yeah. to hit, you know? And so he'd show up out of stealth shoot half shoot a dozen yeah. times go back into stuff and we're like where that sudden disco come from <laughs> that is more tame than dackett mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um dackett who had his eyes melted out his spine severed walked into uh, a private laboratory research center for a necromantic crafting lich uh six three gorillas a rhino and a mammoth on it mm-hmm. And then proceeded to use echolocation, a spell that explicitly states that you don't have to scream for it to work, <laughs> but made the active choice to be like, no, no, I'm going to scream. It's I think, fine. I know, I think, I mean, I know I don't have to, but like, I do have to. I don't have to, but Dackett needs to, you yeah. know, that kind of decision making, mm-hmm. which like, in character, cool, but also, what the fuck? <laughs>
Like no, no one can catch me off guard. No one can catch me unaware. No, like I'll, I'll, I might need a second to figure out how to properly respond. Yep. But I'm not going to be like you've ruined things. No, 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 no. I've, I've, I'm flexible now. (laughs) I'm flexible enough. You don't know what what D and (laughs) D improv is until you have to explain just how much of a sawmill is no longer there because someone threw a bomb. Understand? (laughs) Like I can't be caught off guard anymore, and I challenge people to try. You know, (laughs) organically try and throw me off. It won't happen. Yep. Nothing can nothing can catch me off guard anymore. (laughs) That's what I got my favorite. That get trained me. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I insert Bane monologue here of like (laughs) I was molded by it. You know, I I'm. I'm very passionate about this. You can't catch me off guard no more. Yes, you are. You are. You are water. You you will fit into whatever container that you that you uh, are are placed in because of Dacket. I respect the oh, hell out of that. Oh, it's not even that. It's I am water. I will be whatever state of matter that I need to be yes. in order to survive. <laughs> yeah. Water isn't safe from Dacket either. <laughs> yep, he will dive in and swim around and pee in it a little. Maybe who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> last question. What gives you hope? Oofa. Um, honestly, stuff like bioconcrete, <laughs> uh, stuff like improved renewable solar panels, uh, vertical farming. You know, it, it's very easy to look at the news and see how horrible the, the world is. And mm-hmm. like uh, Timothy Shaw made the joke, made an offhand comment about how he he thinks societal class is in the air. And like he might be right, you know. But at the same time, like people developing an algae that devours plastic. Yeah, uh, they're putting uh, old. Uh, old retired tugboats and, and huge ships in the on the surface floor to create more surface area for things to develop and grow. There's a company that is regrowing coral reefs. Like there's a lot to look forward to in mm-hmm. the pursuit of a better tomorrow. And thinking about that kind of stuff makes me feel better about working in like make believe land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paladin, congrat congratulations. You have run through the most intense gauntlet that I could offer to you. Uh, and as a reward, please tell everyone again who you are, what you do, where to find you, and how to support you. Hey there. Uh, my name is Palden. Formerly, it is formerly, uh, as like not as prayer, but like uh, more formal, like my name's HTT Paladin, because I was trying to make a fun little internet joke and I went. <laughs> Horribly out of out of control on Twitter. <laughs> and here you Who'd are. And here you are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Please don't find me on Facebook. That's really weird. <laughs> um, you can support me by just following me on Twitter and seeing what I'm up to. Uh, yeah, I got. A, I got. I, I always. This is a sidebar here, but like, you ever like? There are a lot of creators with like Ko-Fi's and throwing wishlists and whatnot. Yep. And like, definitely, you can support someone if you like throw them a couple of bucks or yep, have something off a wish list. But also, like, now just see what I'm up to, and like, if you're interested, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right now, I am in. I am the lead designer for a book called Dark Symmetry, which just launched on Ooh. Kickstarter two days ago. Because despite ending a Kickstarter a literal week ago, I'm now part of a second <laughs> Kickstarter four days yes. after that. Thank you. I'm so tired. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, check that out on Kickstarter. It's uh, run by it's run and owned by the Alchemy RPG platform. Mm. I'm having a ball with it. They are giving me full license to be as weird as I want. <laughs> and isn't that again? Isn't that the greatest greatest license that any of us can hope to earn? Oh, definitely. Well, I will be sure to put links to all of those things into the episode descriptions. Uh, but that is all from me, Paladin. Again, thank you so much. This was wonderful. You have been someone that I have enjoyed 
watching from afar for, for some time. So it was a really huge pleasure to, to get to talk to you here a little bit today. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you.